finishing up the reign of Hezekiah. I am so excited about tonight's chapter. I absolutely love this chapter, the blessing that this is. We've spent the first three chapters here talking about Hezekiah's reign and everything he did. If you jump back here to chapter 29, what you see is the temple was basically shut down. Hezekiah's dad had really almost outlawed the worship of Jehovah, shut the temple down, locked it up, threw away the key, if you will. So Hezekiah comes in. One of the first things he does is opens up the temple, cleans the temple up, and they get ready to do Passover. So what happens in chapter 30 is they do Passover, and what a celebration that is. But they just don't stop at doing Passover. In chapter 31, they then go back to their hometowns, and they really make this a relationship with the Lord. Not just an emotional high, but a real, I want things to be different in my area, in my home, in my life, and really represent the Lord in that way. So after that, we get to the final chapter here of Hezekiah's reign. There's so much information here tonight. I'm just really looking forward to this. First things first, verse 1, chapter 32. After these deeds of faithfulness, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came and entered Judah. He encamped against the fortified cities, thinking to win them over to himself. Let's just stop right there. We've had three chapters in a row of Hezekiah doing everything right. Everything right. First verse of chapter 32, the king of Assyria comes and camps against Judah and camps against Jerusalem and is trying to take it over. Do you realize you can do absolutely everything right in your life spiritually and still have a bad day? You can do everything right and you'll still get sick. You can do everything right and your car can still break down. You can do everything right and you can still lose your job. You can. Because the flip side of that is you can also do everything wrong and God still blesses you. But what we have here is three chapters of things going great. And then out of nowhere, here comes the king of Assyria and camps around them and is looking to take them over. Take and take them over. This is nothing new. What happened with Jesus? Jesus was baptized, had this amazing spiritual moment. The Holy Spirit comes down in the form of a dove, sits on his shoulders. The heavens open up. God the Father speaks from heaven. This is my son in whom I'm well pleased. And the next chapter, what happens to Jesus? He goes into the wilderness and he's tempted and tested for 40 days. Spiritual high followed by that tempting and testing. Same thing with Hezekiah. A spiritual high, tempting and testing. We're going to have a baptism here in a couple weeks. And what we always say is this. These people getting baptized are making a public proclamation of their walk with the Lord. And we say we've got to pray for them. Because that baptism Sunday is a blessing. The fellowship, the worship, just the food, just this wonderful time to come together as the body of Christ. But they have to get up the next day and go live a life. The enemy is going to hit them. Same thing here with Hezekiah. Be prepared for that. Now, we use the example of Jesus in the wilderness. But do you remember what it says at the end of the wilderness testing with Jesus? It said Satan left him. And what did he do? He waited for a more opportune time. So you can have these spiritual highs, these spiritual testings. The enemy backs off and says, I'll just wait again. This is what it is, guys. It's a constant battle in our Christian walk. Never take the armor of God off. Never. I've shared this point with you before. I used to say the first thing you should do when you get up in the morning is put on the armor of God, Ephesians 6. I had somebody come up to me after a message and said, why should you ever take it off? You should sleep in it. And as that idea, you're never done battling. It's always a fight. It's always a battle. And so here with Hezekiah, all of a sudden they're surrounded. Now, we have read about a lot of kings here in our study through Second Chronicles. When the enemy came, that they did a lot of dumb things. They asked the world to help them. They turned their back on God. They thought they could do it on their own. Hezekiah, wow, he does it right. Verse 2, 
And when Hezekiah saw that Snacherib had come, that his purpose was to make war against Jerusalem, he consulted with his leaders and commanders to stop the water from the springs which were outside the city, and they helped him. Thus many people gathered together who stopped all the springs in the brook that ran through the land, saying, Why should the kings of Assyria come and find much water? He strengthened himself, built up the walls that was broken, raised up the towers, built another wall outside, also repaired the Milo and the city of David, and made weapons and shields in abundance. Then he sent military captains over the people, gathered them together to him in the open square of the city gate, and gave them encouragement, saying, Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or dismayed before the king of Assyria, nor before all the multitudes that was with him. For there are more with us than with him. And with him is an arm of flesh, but with us is the Lord our God, to help us and to fight our battles. And the people were strengthened by the words of Hezekiah, king of Judah. Let's just break this down. Put yourself in Hezekiah's position. You're surrounded by the king, by the enemy. It looks very dim. looks very grim. What are you going to do? First thing, gets together. Verse 3, he consults with his leadership. This is so important. Proverbs eleven fourteen, Proverbs fifteen twenty two. That there's wisdom in the counsel of many. Godly wisdom comes from getting together and talking to other believers and saying, let's pray about this together. What a blessing it is to get people together. And it may only be for a few minutes, it may be for longer than that, but you get people together and you say, let's seek the Lord together on this. And they do. So first thing you see is you see Hezekiah gaining godly wisdom. There are some other kings that we studied earlier that the Bible says that they thought within themselves. And remember, we said the most dangerous person for you to talk to is who? Yourself. Godly counsel, point number one. So what do they do with this godly counsel? Verse 4, they stop the springs. That may seem kind of simple, but that's a great wisdom. This is how it worked back then. The Assyrians would come, they'd encamp around Jerusalem, and guess what they would do? Just wait. They would just wait. So the Jerusalem, they say, you know what? Let's go fiddle in all those wells. That way, while they're waiting, they don't have any water. See, the Assyrians became a world power because they did things for the first time that no one else ever did. The Assyrians were the first ones to actually build ladders to scale walls. The Assyrians were the first ones to actually use battering rams to try to knock down walls. So the way that they did stuff, they'd come and camp, build their defenses, and just wait. Now, before we pat the Assyrians on the back too much, they were also known to make pyramids out of the skulls of the people they killed. They're a rough group of people. So... The Israelites see this, they stop up all the water, and they basically say in verse 4, why should the king get water? And look what they do. Verse 5, they build up their walls, build up their towers, and make weapons. They get ready for a fight. Now, that's the practical side. Let's talk about the spiritual side of this. What about building up our walls? If you're a note taker, write it down. Proverbs 25, 28. Proverbs 25, 28. Basically what that verse is saying is, your self-control is a wall. Whenever you see walls in the Old Testament, always think of that being a visible picture of defense that you have around us in your spiritual walk with the Lord. So therefore, if your walls are falling apart, what does that mean? You're probably letting a lot of junk into your life that you shouldn't. If your walls are strong spiritually, what does that mean? That means you're blocked, you're defended against a lot of the junk of this world. That's why when Nehemiah came back in the book of Nehemiah, what did he do? He built up the walls. The walls were a practical thing. To protect them, but also it spiritually spoke of the nation of Israel being strong again. So what does Hezekiah do here? He builds up the walls that are broken. He gets prepared. He gets ready. Just real quick, look at your spiritual life. Where are your walls falling down? Repair them. Where are your walls weak? Repair them. Look at the areas you're weak in and say, Lord, I'm weak in that area. 
Those are the areas that need to be repaired. What else does he do? He builds towers, verse 5. Proverbs 18. The name of the Lord is a strong tower, and the righteous run to it and are safe. See, him building up towers is a picture also spiritually of us running to the Lord in times of trouble and saying, I want to be with God because he's the one that's going to help me through this. So often when difficult times hit, I don't know why we do this. We kind of go out on our own. We do this whole flying solo thing. Run to the Lord. The name of the Lord is a strong tower and the righteous run to it are safe. Proverbs 18.10. Hezekiah builds up his towers. He builds up his walls. That also spiritually speaks of us. What do we also have going on here in verse uh, 5? Making weapons and shields in abundance. I saw that word shield. I immediately thought of Ephesians 6. It's the armor of God. You should get in your armor of God on. Put this all together. When you read verse 5, it's very practical. Rebuild the walls, build towers, get your weapons ready. Look at the spiritual of it. Rebuild your walls spiritually, Proverbs 25. Get your towers right spiritually, Proverbs 18. Get your weapons ready spiritually, Ephesians 6. Then you're ready for the battle. And what's the battle? They're coming. And what do you do, verse 6? He says he encourages them. I love this phrase in verse 6. Look at the end of verse 6. There are more with us than with him. Now, that's quite a statement. There are more with us than with him. Do you ever feel that way? Do you ever feel that sometimes you're the minority? There's more with you than with them. Now, how do we know this? Because in 2 Kings 6, if you remember correctly, when Elijah's servant was getting scared, what did he do? He said, Lord, open his eyes and let him see what's above us. And his eyes were open, and what did he see? He saw the whole sky was filled with the armies and the chariots of the Lord. The Bible talks about there's an invisible host of the armies that are with you. Very simple math. If you're just a practical person, let's just break this down for a second. When Satan fell, how many angels did he take with him? Do you remember? He took a third of the angels. How many good angels are left then? Two-thirds. Is two-thirds bigger than one-third? Is the alligator eating the two-thirds, or is the alligator eating the third, if you remember that? We have more on our side. Why do we walk around like this army that's defeated? Why do we walk around like we're the ones that are going to lose? We win. Hezekiah is saying, listen, there's more with us than with him. At this point, they're completely, utterly surrounded. Hezekiah says there's no reason to worry. Why? Verse 8, he has an arm of flesh, but we have the Lord our God. Oh, that's amazing. He's got flesh. He's got ladders. He's got battering rams. He's got better weapons. He's got more soldiers. But guess what we got? We got God. And that has not changed in 4,000 years. Always remember that. That is an amen verse. They have the flesh. We have the Lord. Boy, I love Hezekiah. I love Hezekiah. So before we get to the battle, any quick questions, comments, or anything before we move on? Ryan. Correct. Yep. 
It would be very fresh in their mind. Yeah, it was in uh, 722 B.C. that the northern tribes fell to Assyria, and they're basically working their way down here to Jerusalem, to the kingdom of Judah. At this time, a lot of the northern tribes have been assimilated in with Assyria, or they've been shipped away. So this is very fresh. They saw what happened to the northern tribes. They know it's coming. This is the world power at the time. I mean, there is no comparison at this moment to Assyria. They're an unstoppable force. Anybody else have anything before we go on? Okay, so what happens in the battle? Well, verse 9. After this, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, sent his servants to Jerusalem, but he and all the forces with him laid siege against Lachish, to Hezekiah, king of Judah, and to all Judah who are in Jerusalem, saying, Thus says Sennacherib, king of Assyria, And who do you trust that you remain under siege in Jerusalem? Does not Hezekiah persuade you to give yourself over to die by famine and by thirst, saying, The Lord our God will deliver us from the hand of the king of Assyria? Has not the same Hezekiah taken away his high places and his altars and commanded Judah and Jerusalem, saying, You shall worship before one altar and burn incense on it? Do you not know what I and my fathers have done to all the peoples of other lands? Were the gods, please note little g, were the gods of the other nations of those lands in any way able to deliver their lands out of my hand? Who was there among all the gods of those nations that my fathers utterly destroyed that to deliver his people from my hand, that your God should be able to deliver you from my hand? Now therefore, do not let Hezekiah deceive you or persuade you like this. Do not believe him, for no god of any nation or kingdom was able to deliver his people from my hand or the hand of my fathers. How much less will your God deliver you from my hand? Furthermore, his servants spoke against the Lord to God and against his servant Hezekiah. He also wrote letters to revile the Lord God of Israel and to speak against him, saying, As the gods of the nations of the other lands have not delivered their people from my hand, so the God of Hezekiah will not deliver his people from my hand. Then they called out with a loud voice in Hebrew to the people of Jerusalem who were on the wall to frighten them and to trouble them that they may take the city. And they spoke against the God of Jerusalem as against the gods of the people of the earth, the work of men's hand. Now, that's a good speech. I'm just telling you that right now. That speech is logical. That speech is honest. That speech is not lying in any way whatsoever. We have defeated every other God. Your king is telling you to trust in one God when we've defeated every other God. We're bigger than you. We're more powerful than you. And we're going to make you die by famine or die by thirst. Those are the facts. There's threats. It's logical. And they do fear. You cannot argue with what this guy said. Now, keep your hand here in 2 Chronicles, because this is where we've got to go back a little bit. Go back to 2 Kings. Make a left, two books. 2 Kings 18. To show you how important the reign of Hezekiah is, look at how many chapters are talked about him in Chronicles 4. You'll see how many chapters are spoken about him in Kings. He's one of the main characters in the book of Isaiah. This is a very important time in the nation of Israel. So, 2 Kings gives us a little bit more background here on what's going on. And a couple of things that we just want to point out. First one is, it says that they spoke to them in Hebrew. Why did they speak to them in Hebrew? Look in 2 Kings 18. Look at verse 26. Then Elkiam, the son of Helkiah, Shebna and Joah, said to the Rabbakah, basically the Jews, said to the Assyrians, Please speak to your servants in Aramaic, for we understand it, and do not speak to us in Hebrew in the hearing of the people who are on the wall. Why were they saying that? Because you're going to scare them. The, the leadership of the Jews are yelling across. Imagine this scene. They're on the wall. The Assyrian leaders are coming up, giving them a speech. The Jewish leaders are on the wall. The Jewish leaders are yelling to them, Hey, could you talk to us in Aramaic? Because 
the guys around us only speak Hebrew, and if you say this in Hebrew, you're really going to scare them. The guy gives a speech in Hebrew. Can you imagine how that would kind of run a little bit? Because if they would only speak in Aramaic, the leadership could look at the other Jews and say, hey, guys, they're scared. They're thinking about leaving. No. They said they're going to kill us. So that's kind of an interesting little point right there. Second point I want to say that we see here in 2 Kings is they wrote reviling letters. 2 Kings 19. Go ahead one chapter. Have you ever got a reviling letter? I've gotten a few reviling letters in my day. I keep all of them. I really do. My desk drawer, bottom right. I, don't, I keep a lot of the notes that people write that are, oh, you're really nice and we like you. I enjoy those. Problem is I have a tendency to focus on those. I keep the nasty ones. And I've gotten some nasty ones before in the past. Nasty ones of, of people telling me to step down. Nasty ones of words that I didn't even know what they meant. Nasty ones of words that I can't say. They were nasty. What do you do when you're attacked and reviled with it. Verse 14, 2 Kings 19. Hezekiah received the letters from the hands of the messengers, read it, and Hezekiah went up to the house of the Lord and spread it before the Lord. Oh, I love that. Why would you even carry that burden of those letters? Take it and spread it before the Lord. James, you don't know what they're saying about me at work. Spread it before the Lord. You don't know what they're saying about me online. You don't know what they've emailed about me. You don't know what they're saying behind my back. Spread it before the Lord. Verse 15, same chapter. Hezekiah prayed before the Lord and said, O Lord God of Israel, the one who dwells between the cherubim, you are God. You alone of all the kingdoms of the earth. You have made heaven and earth. Look at this. Getting back to creation. Getting back to worship. Do you realize verse 15 is worship? Worship right in the midst of the storm. Verse 16, incline your ear, O Lord. Hear, open your eyes, O Lord, and see and hear the words of Sennacherib, which he has sent to reproach the living God. Basically what Hezekiah said, God, he's picking on you. He's picking on you. Verse 17, truly, Lord, the kings of Assyria have laid waste the nations in their lands. There's no argument about this. No argument. They have taken over everything. Verse 18, they have cast their gods into the fire, for they were not gods, but the work of men's hands, wood and stone. Therefore, they destroyed them. Now, therefore, O Lord, our God, I pray, save us from his hand, that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you are the Lord God alone. Put the letters before the Lord, give it over to the Lord, and let him take care of it. Guess what happens? Jump back now, Second Chronicles 32, verse 20. Now because of this, King Hezekiah, the prophet Isaiah, the son of Amaz, prayed and cried out to heaven. You can see the connection there between Isaiah and Hezekiah. The Lord sent an angel who cut down every mighty man of valor, leader and captain in the camp of the king of Assyria. So he returned shamefaced to his own land. When he had gone into the temple of his God, some of his own offspring struck him down with a sword there. Bible tells us that how many were killed? 185,000 Assyrians were killed in one night. One night. This most powerful army in the world was stopped at the gates of Jerusalem. What did Hezekiah pray in 2 Kings 19 one more time? Therefore, Lord our God, I pray, save us from his hand, that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you are the Lord God, you alone. Lord, let this be so amazing that the world can't deny this. Guess what? The world can't deny this. This is where it gets fascinating. i got a couple slides I want to show. Dustin, can you put up the first slide real quick? Now, this is difficult to see. This is a map of the kingdom of Assyria 
about 700 BC, and this is a Christian map. Now, if you can tell, right here's Jerusalem. There's a little tiny orange circle right there. That's trying to show you that Assyria took over everything except for Jerusalem. Now, the problem is this is a Christian map, right? So we as believers are going to obviously know this. Can you go to the next slide, though? As you can tell, this is not a Christian map. This is a historical, secular map showing the kingdom of Assyria. And it's hard to tell, but there's a tiny little yellow circle right there around Judah. Where even the world says, wait a second, this nation took over everything except for Jerusalem. Now, if that's not enough evidence for you, let's read Sennacherib's own words. See, what happened is they found, I think, three different ones, at least two. They're called prisms, where they would write out, the kings would write out the history of what they have done. This is, was found, this is Assyrian, and this is Sennacherib's own words about Hezekiah. Quote, As for the king of Judah, Hezekiah, who had not submitted to my authority, I besieged and captured 46 of his fortified cities, along with many smaller towns taken in battle with my battering rams. I took as plunder 200,150 people, both small and great, male and female, along with a great number of animals, including horses, mules, donkeys, camels, oxen, and sheep. As for Hezekiah, I shut him up like a caged bird in his royal city of Jerusalem. I then constructed a series of fortresses around him, and I did not allow anyone to come out of the city gates. His towns which I captured, I gave to the kings of Ashdod, Ekron, and Gaza. Those are Sennacherib's own words. You may say, well, what's the big deal? Does he ever say that he captured Jerusalem? No. By his own admission, he didn't capture Jerusalem. This is just fascinating. So what happened is they found these, and they have two of them, and they're called prisms, where Assyria kept track of their history. So basically, this is the greatest report you could give without mentioning that you lost. I fortified, I constructed a series of fortresses around him, and I had him like shut up like a caged bird. But he never took the city. And it's fascinating that even from a secular history standpoint, there is evidence here that this did not happen. So I started reading up on what the secular historians think that happened. And the best example they can come up with is a plague of Chlora. Um, yeah, Chlora went through it. And basically all the Assyrians got sick and they died and left. Not in one night. <laughs> that's, that's a pretty nasty plague. But I find that fascinating. So when I read this... And they talk about how the nations would understand and talk about this for years to come. They still do. Assyria took over the then known world except for this tiny little town called Jerusalem, which they could not defeat. And as the historians try to figure out why they couldn't defeat it, the only thing they need to do is go read Second Chronicles 32 and find out that an angel of the Lord went down and killed 185,000 of them. And by his own words, he admits he could not take the city. It's an absolutely fascinating thing, and that's why I love this chapter so much, because you not only see the biblical side, but there's also the historical side that you get a chance to see. It's like, wow, Lord, what great evidence this is. Any quick questions, comments here? Ryan. Uh, the 185,000 It is a massive slaughter. And the thing is, when you stop and think about it, it was one angel that did it. One angel that did it. And so when it says in Psalms that God sends his angels charge over thee, it really kind of shows you what are we worried about? One word are we worried about? Anybody else have anything here before we move on? Okay. Well, verse 22. Thus the Lord saved Hezekiah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem from the hand of Sennacherib, the king of Assyria. 
and from the hand of all others, and guided them on every side. And many brought gifts to the Lord of Jerusalem and presents to Hezekiah, king of Judah. So he was exalted in the sight of all nations thereafter. Now, you've heard me say this a lot. If we could just stop right there. But this is where it gets really interesting with Hezekiah. See, with a lot of other kings, when they taste success, they go downhill. Well, it kind of happens that way with Hezekiah. It kind of doesn't. Hezekiah is just so absolutely fascinating. Let's just see what happens to him. Verse 24. In those days, Hezekiah was sick and near death, and he prayed to the Lord, and he spoke to him and gave him a sign. So, what happens here? Well, let's talk about this a little bit. All right, let's go to 2 Kings. 2 Kings 20. Once again, remember, Chronicles follows only really the southern tribes, Judah. Kings follows both. So sometimes 2 Kings gives a little bit more information than what we have in Chronicles. 2 Kings 20. So in 2 Kings 20, Hezekiah is getting sick. Verse 1. In those days Hezekiah was sick and near death. And Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amaz, went to him and said to him, Thus says the Lord, Set your house in order, for you shall die and not live. Then he turned his face toward the wall and prayed to the Lord, saying, Remember now, O Lord, I pray, how I have walked before you in truth and with a loyal heart, and have done what was good in your heart, excuse me, in your sight. And Hezekiah wept bitterly. And it happened before Isaiah had gone into the middle court that the word of the Lord came to him, saying, Return and tell Hezekiah, the leader of my people, thus says the Lord my God of David, excuse me, the God of David your father, I have heard your prayer, I have seen your tears, surely I will heal you. On the third day you shall go up to the house of the Lord. Now I add to your days fifteen years. And I will deliver you in the city from the hand of the king of Syria, and I will defend the city for my own sake and for the sake of my servant David. Then Isaiah said, Take a lump of figs. They took it and laid it on the boil, and he recovered. And Hezekiah said to Isaiah, What is the sign that the Lord will heal me, and that I shall go up to the house of the Lord the third day? Then Isaiah said, This is the sign to you from the Lord, that the Lord will do these things which he had spoken. Shall the shadow go forward ten degrees or go backwards ten degrees? Hezekiah answered, it's an easy thing for the shadow to go down 10 degrees. No, but let the shadow go backward 10 degrees. So basically go back in time about 45 minutes. So Isaiah the prophet cried out to the Lord. He brought the shadow 10 degrees backward by which it had gone down on the sundial of Ahaz. So fascinating story there. Hezekiah is about to die. Isaiah shows up. Isaiah says, set your house in order. You're going to die. Hezekiah weeps. He cries. He prays. God says, yeah, I'll, I'll heal you. I'll give you an extra 15 years. Hezekiah says, hey, what's the proof of this? Hey, I'll just make time go backwards a little bit. Makes time goes backwards. Fascinating story, right? Now, once again, if we could just stop right there. You just got 15 extra years. What are you going to do with it? Well, it'd be great if Hezekiah would end strong. Problem is, he doesn't end as strong as what we want. Keep your hand here in 2 Kings 20, because we're coming right back to it. Jump back to 2 Chronicles 32. So he gets this extra health. Verse 25. Hezekiah did not repay according to the favor shown him, for his heart was lifted up. He got 15 extra years, but the problem was he didn't finish strong with it. Therefore, wrath was looming over him and over Judah and Jerusalem. Then Hezekiah humbled himself for the pride of his heart, and he and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the wrath of the Lord did not come upon them in the days of Hezekiah. We'll get to that in a little bit. What did he do that was so wrong? Verse 27, Hezekiah had very great riches and honor. He made himself treasuries for silver, for gold, for precious stones, for spices, for shields, and for all kinds of desirable items. Storehouses for the harvest of grain and wine and oil and stalls for all kinds of livestock and folds for flocks. Moreover, he provided cities for himself and possessions of flocks and herds in abundance, for God had given him very much property. 
This same Hezekiah also stopped the water outlet of the upper Gehan and brought the water by tunnel to the west side of the city of David. Hezekiah prospered in all his works. Real quick, verse 30, that's known as Hezekiah's tunnel. Still around today, you can see it. It's kind of an amazing feat that they did. Verse 31, however, regarding the ambassadors of the princes of Babylon, whom they sent to him to inquire about the wonder that was done in the land, God withdrew from him in order to test him so he might know all that was in his heart. Now, that's an interesting verse. So basically, he had 15 extra years, and what did he do? Kind of spent it on himself. All building up to, well, he did this with the Babylonians. What did he do with the Babylonians? Let's make a few more points and bring this together. Back to 2 Kings 20. Let's find out what he does with the Babylonians. Verse 12, 2 Kings 20. At that time, Barodach Baladan, the son of Baladan, king of Babylon, sent letters and a present to Hezekiah for her that Hezekiah had been sick. Hezekiah was attentive to them and showed them all the house of his treasuries, the silver and gold, the spices and precious ointment and all his armory, all that was found among his treasuries. There was nothing in the house or in all of his dominion that Hezekiah did not show them. Hey, you just let the enemy in and showed him everything you have. See, Babylon becomes the world power after Assyria. And it's in 586 B.C. that Babylon comes, destroys Jerusalem, and guess what they do? They destroy this temple and strip everything from it. How did Babylon know that this was a great place to come ransack? Well, verse 14, Isaiah the prophet went to King Hezekiah and said to him, What did these men say and from where did they come from? So Hezekiah said, They came from a far country, from Babylon. And he said, What have they seen in your house? Hezekiah answered, They have seen all that is in my house. There is nothing among my treasuries that I have not shown them. Imagine inviting someone to your house. That's the enemy. Let me show you where I hide everything. Do you want the combination? This is, this is a trick floor right here. If you lift this up, you can really see where I hide stuff. I put it up behind on top shelf there, behind everything. You'll never find it. Let me show you how great it is. Verse 16. Isaiah said to Hezekiah, hear the word of the Lord. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and that your fathers have accumulated until this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. See, what happened was Hezekiah got prideful. He wanted to show everything off to the Babylonians. So God is basically saying, Hezekiah, you want the Babylonians to see it so bad? The Babylonians can have it. Verse 18, they shall take away some of your sons who will descend from you, who will beget, and they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. Hezekiah, you're letting pride get the best of you. Verse 19, Hezekiah said to Isaiah, The word of the Lord which you have spoken is good. For he said, Will there not be peace and truth at least in my days? Did you catch verse 19? The word of the Lord which you have spoken is good. How is this good? Because the most selfish of selfish verses in the Bible, Will there not be peace and truth at least in my days? Hezekiah says, Because I don't have to worry about it because it's not happening in my time. God gave Hezekiah 15 more years. And what did he do? In those 15 years, he opened up the treasuries to Babylon and says, I want you to see it all. I want you to see it all. God says, your pride, Hezekiah. Your pride has led this to now they are going to take this from you and take your kids. And Hezekiah is so prideful, he says, well, this is not happening in my time frame. And even to show one more thing about this problem of this extra 15 years. Hezekiah got how many extra years? For 15, right? Go back to 32 of Second Chronicles 32, verse 32. Now the rest of the acts of Hezekiah and his goodness, indeed they are written in the vision of Isaiah, the prophet, the son of Amaz, and in the book of the kings of Judah and Israel. So Hezekiah rested with his fathers, and they buried him in the upper tombs of the sons of David, and all Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem honored him. 
and his death, and Manasseh's son reigned in his place. Manasseh, you can make the case, was the most evil, worst king that ever lived for Judah. Awful king. Awful king. We've had some bad kings. Manasseh is awful. Now, we'll talk about how Manasseh ends, though. But Manasseh starts out awful. Hey, real quick, verse 1, chapter 33. Manasseh was 12 years old and became king. Do the math real quick. Hezekiah got how many extra years? 15. What did he do in those extra 15 years? He fathered Manasseh. It was one of the most evil, awful kings that ever existed. How did Hezekiah use his extra 15 years? Well, he decided to have a kid that was evil. He opened up the gates to Babylon. Didn't end well. Didn't end well in any way whatsoever. Now, before we start thinking here, well, then why did God in his infinite wisdom give him the extra 15 years? He did know that was going to happen. Yeah. He knew that was going to happen. See, here's the thing about the Lord. And I, I remember saying this one time from the pulpit. And I remember somebody getting very frustrated. And I said, let me try to explain this to you. Here's the question. Does God always get what he wants? The answer is no. Well, that's not right. He's God. He can do whatever he wants, whenever he wants, however he wants. Okay, he could. But God has also given us free will. And in that free will, we can make a lot of choices, both good and both bad. So what does God want? God wants for me today to do what? To love the body of Christ, to teach you guys tonight, to love my wife as Christ loved the church, to raise my kids in a spiritual home. That's what God wants. And free will, I can choose to do that or I can't. So if I go home and I choose not to do anything spiritual with my family, and so they wake up the next day and say, Dad, why didn't you do anything spiritual? Why aren't you acting like a spiritual man? Well, obviously God doesn't want me to. Because if he wanted me to, he'd make me do it. No, in my free will, I can choose to do this. So we understand that God was testing him. If you look at verse 31, 2 Chronicles 32, God withdrew from him in order to test him that he might know all that was in his heart. I want to know your heart, Hezekiah. And this isn't the only example of God giving people what they want, even though it's not a good thing. Because God says, listen, you have to learn to trust me. And if I tell you it's not a good idea, trust me. What's the other example of this? Well, in Psalm 106, we learn that when God gave the Israelites, remember all that quail? Remember, go back during the wilderness time. They wake up in the morning and what do they get? They get manna on the grass. And if you study out what manna is, it's basically like donuts every morning on the grass. And in the evening, what do they get? Quail. So every day, they get donuts for breakfast and they get fresh meat for supper. That's a great combo. But when God gave them quail, do you remember what the Israelites did with it? gorged themselves on it so much so that they got so sick and diseased that the Bible says while the meat was still in their mouth, they were dying. Now, Psalm 106 tells us the Lord allowed this to happen to teach them a lesson. God allowed them to do it, to teach them a lesson. Well, that's not a very loving God. It actually is a loving God. He said, listen, I'm warning you on this. If you continue to do it, it's going to be a problem. Parents, don't we do that with our kids? Listen, don't do it. I'm telling you right now, this is not going to turn out well. Don't do it. I got a little phrase that we use in our house all the time. It's called quit while we're ahead. We had nine graduation parties that we went to over the last month. And when it got close to the end, kids didn't do anything wrong. I'd go to Dawn and say, it's time to go. She'd go, why? Nothing bad's happening. I know. Quit while we're ahead. 
Get them loaded up before it's a problem. If we go to town, quit while we're ahead. That's always been my phrase. Every holiday, Christmas, Thanksgiving, we're the first family to leave. Why? Quit while we're ahead. Leave them wanting more. Sometimes we don't do that spiritually, do we? God says sometimes just be done. Oh, Lord, I can do this. I I can do it. No, you can't. No, you can't. Hezekiah, maybe the best thing was for you just to go home and be at rest with the Lord. Well, obviously the Lord used it. Yeah, obviously the Lord does use it. Romans 8, 28, and all things God works for the good. He'll use anything for his purpose. Dawn and I were talking about a situation that happened in our life recently, and she said something really spiritual that made me think about it. She goes, it's possible that we made the wrong decision, she said, but God's still using it for good. Haven't you ever done that where you look back and say, wow, Lord, I think I pretty much so messed that one up. But God says I can still use it for good. So Hezekiah was given 15 extra years. <sighs> Maybe he should have quit while he was ahead. But now before we pick on Manasseh too much, Manasseh has one of the best endings. See, a lot of these kings we talk about start good and bad. Manasseh, next week we get to flip that around. Starts awful, but ends good. What a neat praise and blessing that is. Hezekiah is one of the most fascinating people to study in the book of Chronicles. I absolutely love him. I absolutely love this chapter. This chapter to me just speaks so much of trusting the Lord when you're surrounded by the enemy. Trusting that the Lord is going to move and work in ways that you can't even imagine. Putting the letters before the Lord in the temple. Not letting it get to you. Somebody's threatening you. Somebody is using fear. And you just take it right back to the Lord. Building up your spiritual walls, building up your spiritual towers, getting your spiritual weapons around. What a neat blessing that is. But at the same time, we can learn from the end of this too. Why is he showing everything to Babylon? Why is he allowing pride to get to him like he defeated Assyria? Oh man, let's keep our hands off of everything. It's all about the Lord. God gets the glory. And sometimes we need to quit while we're ahead. But I tell you, what a blessing it is to study out Hezekiah. I've thoroughly enjoyed these last four weeks. And to be honest, I'm really looking forward to next week with Manasseh. But hey, we're pushing 8 o'clock here. Anybody got any final questions, comments about anything? Marcus. Right. And that's something we were going to get into next week a little bit. Some people believe that the Lord also gave him the extra 15 years to have an heir. Because there is really not much of a mention here of why Manasseh would be chosen if no one else was either. So we can pick on Hezekiah because in those extra 15 years, he fathers Manasseh. But like I said, Manasseh ends strong. He's an interesting character himself too. But you bring up a good point, Marcus, and other people have brought that up before too. It shouldn't have had to be Manasseh. But maybe the Lord gave him an extra 15 years so he could have a son too. Anybody else have anything here before we close out? Rose. Mm-hmm. Right. That's a great point. Does God always get what he wants? And that, and that actually was the point that caused trouble with that one individual. Because that was my point. If God always got what he wanted, we'd still be in the Garden of Eden. We'd be in perfect health. We'd be in perfect happiness. No stress, no fear, no worry, no sickness. That was God's original plan for us. We really messed that up. We really messed that up. Anybody else have anything here they want to say before we close up? All right. Hey, let's pray this into our lives. And let's see what God has in store next week for Manasseh. Heavenly Father, we we want to learn from Hezekiah. Lord, if there are walls in our life that are falling down, in the name of Jesus, help us to build them up. If there are a tower that we need to run to because the righteous run to it and are safe, we want to do that. Lord, if we don't have our armor on, Lord, help us to get prepared for the battle that is coming. And Lord, 
The days you give us, they're all a blessing. Help us to live for you those days. It's not about us. It's about you. Help us to do that, Lord. And for whatever days, weeks, months, years we have left, it's all for you, Lord. And help us to truly live it. We love you. We thank you. We praise you. And Lord, real quick, we give you VBS. We give you the baptism. We give you Ladies Day. Uh, We give you the people going to Johnny and Friends Camp on that little missions trip, Lord. Um, We just give you all these upcoming events. they, They mean nothing without you. And pray that you'd get the glory, Lord, in your name. Amen. You guys have a good week. God bless. If you've got anything you want to pray about, come grab me. If not, we will see you guys next week.